Welcome to Oncology Today, Management of Pancreatic Cancer, a special program focused on recently published and emerging clinical research. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Andrew Koh from the University of California in San Francisco. In addition to this audio interview, we're also posting a video presentation by Dr. Koh. To begin, he commented about the biology of pancreatic cancer. We just start out talking a little bit about what we've learned about the biology of this disease in recent years. Anything uh, that we've learned that you know that's new and exciting and maybe points the way for future interventions, uh, both in terms of the microenvironment, targeted, uh, targetable mutations, anything that's going on right now that you think is stuff that people would be interested in as it relates to the biology of the disease? I think we're getting a better handle on pancreatic cancer biology. I think patients with pancreatic cancer now, as we're trying to define unique molecular subgroups where there might be some therapeutic implications, is actually really important. And so that gets to the idea that all patients with a new diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, we should be doing, A, we should be doing germline testing on them. Um, because we'll uh, pick up a proportion of patients who have particular hereditary mutations like BRCA mutations, et cetera, that actually have very strong clinical implications, as well as do somatic tumor profiling. So next-gen sequencing, really uh, getting a handle on drivers of their tumor. What I tell patients is any information is great to have. Admittedly, it'll be more the exception rather than the rule that we'll really find something that we can do something uh, about. But there are these small, we can carve out these small subgroups of uh, individuals where, yes, th this information can be used to sort of direct particularly later lines of treatment. And so that's sort of one, I think, way in which our understanding of uh, uh, pancreatic tumor biology has implications. The other really has to do with the thinking through how we can uh, develop novel therapies for this disease. So you pointed out the microenvironment, which we now understand is just a very, this tumor microenvironment is, is sort of a hot area for um, investigators to really try to figure out how to exploit, how to overcome some of the, the physical barriers of the microenvironment, how to turn a, an immunologically cold tumor microenvironment hot so that it will be more responsive to immunotherapy agents that have transformed other diseases, but have not made such a huge impact in pancreatic cancer to this point. So I think these are particular areas where, where a better understanding has allowed us to at least have a more thoughtful strategy in how we might attack this disease going forward. Let's talk a little bit about your two cases and just see where that leads. I'll start now with this 55-year-old woman. What happened there? Yeah, so these are cases taken from my clinical practice. Uh, this was a 55-year-old woman she presented with obstructive jaundice symptoms, including pruritus, darkened urine, and was found to have uh, elevated LFTs, including a bilirubin of 8.6. And so had an ultrasound followed by a CT scan, and this showed a pancreatic head mass. I will point out that a CT scan ideally should be done with this pancreatic protocol, which is a thin cut through the pancreas, looking at it through different phases after the uh, IV contrast is injected. Uh, because that really gives you a sense of the mass of in the pancreas uh, relative to the mesenteric vessels. And in this patient's case, the mass was noted to um, abut by about 180 degrees the superior mesenteric vein. 
uh, as well as um, just sort of the posterior aspect of the SMA. So not encasing it, but just kind of pushing against it. There was so-called double duct sign with both uh, biliary and pancreatic duct dilatation and no evidence of metastatic disease. So naturally, send the patient to GI, had an ERCP, stent is placed, and an EOS is done at the same time to sample that uh, mass, which confirms adenocarcinoma. So this is a patient that we would present at our multidisciplinary tumor board because someone with non-metastatic disease may be in the realm of uh, operable, and, and this is sort of what we need to decide in terms of how to approach this patient. And, and I will say this is a very common scenario, someone who will uh, put in the category of having borderline resectable disease. Can you talk a little bit about how you categorize local disease in terms of borderline resectable and the other categories of how you <clears throat> put patients in who have localized disease? Yeah, so it's very easy to be glib and say, oh, this is in the eye of the beholder. But in fact, there are very specific radiologic criteria that have been developed by several different groups, including NCCN and ASCO and uh, others to try to really define that. And, and this really involves sort of a surgical perspective uh, in terms of what is and isn't possible from a resectability standpoint. And uh, that really has to do with the relationship of the tumor with the surrounding mesenteric vasculature. So you can have up to a certain degree of involvement, say, of the superior mesenteric artery or even partial involvement of the SMV or, or portal vein, as long as that can be reconstructed. Um, and so on one end of the spectrum is someone with a localized tumor that really is not involving any of those vessels at all and could technically be operated with a high likelihood of clean margins from the get-go. The other end of the spectrum is someone who has a, a tumor that clearly has grown as, and is encasing the celiac or superior mesenteric artery or is just sort of uh, completely occluding the the. SMV portal vein confluence, uh, just someone who even with great treatment is realistically not likely to go to surgery. And, and so this is a patient who falls in that intermediate category of borderline resectable disease. So it, it's someone who we say, hmm, well, if you went to surgery up front, they'll need a, probably need to take out part of the vein, may have, have a high risk of microscopically positive margins. So what can we do to improve the likelihood of her undergoing a successful R0 resection down the road. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the mechanics of why systemic therapy might be helpful in terms of resectability? Like where is the tumor? I always had this vision that the tumor gets pulled away from the vessels. Is that the primary mechanism? I mean, I assume that once it's invaded into something, it's, you can't make it go away. But some sort of a pathophysiologic point of view, how do you convert somebody from borderline resectable to resectable? What happens? Well, first of all, I always emphasize to patients that who, think, who just think about, oh, well, it's just shrinking the, the tumor down. And that's, that's part of it. Obviously, the other whole conceptual appeal is the, the sort of correct selection of patients, the hopefully addressing micrometastatic disease, that piece as well. But actually, with effective contemporary regimens, of which we have the greatest experience with Falfirinox in this setting, the, the surgeons will tell you actually that when they uh, uh, go into uh, resect a tumor that has been pre-treated with Falfirinox, that tumor now um, really, uh, whereas before it would just be really difficult to separate from those uh, vessels, now just can peel off very 
uh, readily. And in fact, pathologically, um, you may see at the time, even if, even if radiologically the tumor seems to have maybe just shrunk a little, um, you go to surgery and sometimes uh, the treatment effect can be quite profound. There might just be a few scattered cells uh, uh, remaining or sometimes even a, uh, a rarely a complete pathologic uh, remission. So, I mean, there is definitely a profound effect with contemporary chemo regimens on, on site reduction and, and sort of that, as you said, that pulling away of the, the tumor from those vessels. In this kind of patient, what kind of genomic workup, if any, do you do? So I will, uh, even from the get-go from such patients, I will do, as I said, I'll send anyone with a pancreatic cancer diagnosis now for uh, germline testing. And then depending on the adequacy of the material we get from their uh, biopsy, we will do somatic profiling. And that can be either through a commercial platform or our institution has its own uh, in-house um, uh, uh, profile for looking at uh, driver mutations and other uh, genetic alterations. We certainly do uh, testing for microsatellite instability, uh, just things that are potentially, uh, potentially actionable uh, in these individuals. How often do you see MSI high tumors? I mean, how many of you treated, for example? It's rare in pancreatic cancer. It doesn't mean we don't do it because the therapeutic implications are so profound. But studies show one, one and a half percent uh, at most. So I've had a handful of patients, and I will say, uh, who have done very well with um, immune checkpoint inhibition. I don't use that in the frontline setting. I don't think the, the data are strong enough for that, but it'll typically be someone who has previously received chemotherapy and at a subs as a subsequent line of treatments. And I, I will say not in this perioperative or, or adjuvant, neoadjuvant adjuvant setting. Uh, we're not ready for use of it in that context yet. Hmm, really? So you wouldn't want you have a patient like this, if she was MSI high, you wouldn't think about a checkpoint inhibitor as part of her therapy pre-op? Would not think about it. The data I showed from some of the keynote trials, the even the response rate to these immune checkpoint inhibitors for MSI high pancreas cancer is not as good as that for um, our combination chemotherapy regimens. And I wouldn't just add it on top of chemotherapy without uh, strong data to support that. I guess one question, too, also I want to ask you is choice of chemotherapy regimen in the neoadjuvant setting. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, Fulfirinox really clearly has been preferred, but we saw some data with NABGEM. Uh, I think it was at the last ASCO meeting. Maybe you could comment on that and what you thought about it. Yeah. So I think from my personal experience, and I think those of others, we've had the best track record with um, using Fulfirinox uh, in this context. As I say, we've had an institutional experience that shows that patients can achieve sometimes near-complete pathologic responses uh, with that. And there have been a number of studies, in fact, now meta-analyses looking at that. And there have been some data looking at gem nab paclitaxel um, uh, as well, including the LAPACT trial, which was for locally advanced slash borderline resectable disease. Now, the study you're referring to was a, a, was a SWOG a national cooperative group trial that compared fulfirinox with gemnab paclitaxel in the perioperative setting. So that was for patients with resectable disease. They were pretty straightforward randomization. They either got a few months of fulfirinox pre and post-op or a few months of gemnab paclitaxel pre and post-op. The important, couple important take-home messages from that study. Number one, a lot of patients technically did not, uh, who were enrolled did not meet eligibility criteria for having clearly resectable disease, kind of highlighting the importance of sort of central review of, of in, in trying to 
sort out really what's resectable versus borderline resectable, et cetera. Both of those arms actually, it was a pick the winner design. And frankly, neither arm sort of met the pre-specified endpoint in terms of defining success. But I think surprisingly to me and to others is that if anything, patients receiving gemmapaclitaxel fared a little bit better in terms of uh, overall outcomes, in terms of survival results. It, it wasn't necessarily powered to show a difference or improvement compared to fulfinox, but I think it left a lot of us saying, huh, well, our sort of uh, bias towards fulfinox, at least in, in this study, wasn't really, um, wasn't realized. All that being said, it, it still doesn't change my mind when you ask about the selection of treatment. For a robust patient like this woman, um, I'm still going to uh, favor using fulfirinox uh, in that context. What about the strategy of using neoadjuvant therapy in patients who appear to be resectable? Is that something you do outside a trial setting? Yeah, so there is a very important uh, cooperative group trial through the Alliance that is looking at that for resectable disease, looking at fulfirinox. You know, outside the context of a trial, um, there are still going to be patients who who have resectable disease who we're going to just take straight away to surgery, whether because of their preference or just because sometimes just because we can get them to the OR quite quickly and we think they'll recover uh, smoothly um, and, and well. Our surgeons are now becoming believers. They're now moving more in the direction of if there's any reason to think of giving them treatment in the neoadjuvant setting, they're fine punting on uh, surgery. I think sort of the old argument against it in terms of, oh, you're going to lose the window of opportunity to undergo a curative resection. I think from our understanding of pancreas biology, that's pretty much gone by the wayside. A neoadjuvant approach is going to better select individuals who will benefit from surgery. Those who sort of fall out and can't undergo surgery, we're never going to benefit from an operation in the first place. I mean, one way to look at it is, you know, maybe you're saving patients from going through a major surgical procedure who are destined to die pretty soon, so improving quality life. You know, by seeing METs pop up, you know, that METs will pop up before they have surgery by giving a neoadjuvant. 100% agree. And I think patients themselves now are coming to that understanding. So rarely do we have to talk them out of that. I think when you explain the conceptual benefits of neoadjuvant treatment, uh, they get it and are on board. So let's continue with this patient's case. What happened there? So we decided to go with a modified Falfirinox regimen in her case. She got eight cycles in total, and the duration of treatment in this context is a, a moving target. We'll sometimes go as much as 12 cycles. The current alliance uh, trial in this uh, context gives eight cycles uh, preoperatively. And she appears to have a, a, a nice response, and her CA99 uh, level declines to within normal limits by the end of those eight cycles. And there are other uh, uh, data that really show that patients most likely to benefit then from subsequent surgery, those who you can get their CA-19-9 level down to completely or near completely normal levels. And so at that point, we were faced with the decision, okay, uh, is this the right time to take her to uh, the OR? I will say there are inter-institutional differences about the need for preoperative radiation in this context. But in our experience, we've done very well with patients just getting chemo alone. So she went straight to surgery after her eight cycles of chemo had a pylorus-preserving Whipple. She did still require an SMV resection. And there was actually a very good treatment uh, effect and just a few scattered uh, cancer cells in the resection specimen, zero lymph nodes, and clean margins. Uh, it was a little bit of a slow and gradual recovery. 
process, we talked about whether to um, uh, complete an additional four cycles of chemotherapy afterwards. I'm not sure there's anything magic about 12 cycles uh, necessarily. And she ended up declining and wanted to just focus on her post-op recovery. And so now it's been um, uh, more than a year. We monitor every three months or so. She's recovered well and remains uh, free of disease. So I always tell patients, the longer you go, the better your chances you are. And that's just because the, the, the relapse rates are really highest during that first one to two years and then just drops off uh, after that. So I'm, I'm feeling more and more confident about her, her chances of cure uh, with this strategy. I'm curious, you mentioned that she wanted to focus on her recovery. And I'm kind of curious, I don't know if she might have asked you what she could do in terms of diet, exercise, and a lifestyle, supplements. I know a lot of patients ask that. How do you usually respond? Sometimes I'll extrapolate from other data that we we know. For example, there's more in the colorectal world in terms of um, in terms of helpful uh, uh, dietary habits. There's across a number of different diseases, looking at having uh, replete vitamin D levels, uh, certain diseases uh, in terms of uh, using aspirin. Uh, evidence is not quite as strong in pancreatic cancer, so I admit that. Uh, I talk about just sort of a. Uh, I do talk about healthy eating uh, patterns because I think that's that's a, a sound recommendation across the board. Uh, a lot of these patients anyways have to modify their uh, eating habits uh, with a, a smaller uh, uh, pancreas, um, including using enzyme supplements, and, and some of them are uh, rendered diabetic afterwards. But other than that, it really is just well-balanced diet. It's um, uh, exercise. Uh, but in terms of additional supplements and things like that, that we're getting a little bit into the uh, gray zone where um, we don't have quite as much data to support. So before we go into the next case, I'm kind of curious. I saw, I was working with Mike Fishkin, and um, I saw a paper that he did looking at SEER data, suggesting that there are a lot of people in the United States with pancreatic cancer who kind of like don't get anti-cancer therapy, you know, don't see an oncologist. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I, I when I look at those uh, data, and, and some of them are looking at sort of earlier time periods, um, and hopefully that's changed now as people are getting more uh, comfortable, and now as we have, I think, more effective uh, regimens in both the first and second line settings. But admittedly, in my sort of academic practice, I think I have a bias in terms of the patients I see. And, and I think it does highlight that out in the community, and especially perhaps in um, more rural areas or, or, or places where the medical care just isn't as um, isn't as, as as accessible, there is going to be a more nihilistic approach to it. And whether that's on the part of provider or patients or again issues of access to care, um, I do still think that's a very real problem. Um, and it's it's good to recognize that. And I you know we always want patients to be able to be treated at kind of specialized centers of excellence. Um, but obviously, that's not possible um, in all cases. It's interesting. I saw similar SEER data for AML that was done a few years ago. And, you know, AML was just a desperate situation in the older patient, particularly. And then venetoclax and hypomethylating agents came along. And I don't know that it's going to be a cure or anything, but most, you know, it really changed dramatically. Most people went in remission. And I think that really affected it. And I wonder what would happen if you. You know, something like that happened in pancreatic cancer. The, all of a sudden, 
something you had a new strategy. I mean, PARP, yeah, but I'm not sure that's you know going to affect that high percentage of patients. Yeah, it would be great to have similar game changers and just ones that are um, easy to administer and that sort of make a, sort of are transformative. Um, we're not there yet, um, which um, I think sort of highlights what the sort of some, still the ongoing nihilism that I think is still present in some segments. Do you think there's a stigma that patients pick up about or, you know, sort of a pessimism? You know, this lady, for example, what had she heard about pancreatic cancer? What kind of attitude did she have? Sounds like she was pretty positive. Yeah, very positive. And, and it, in, in, in such individuals, I always try to highlight that, you know, what we're going for is cure. Because we are curing now, I think, a greater proportion of patients. And the sort of the adjuvant fulfurinox data that I shared before, I, I mean, patients are living close to five years with resected disease. And so a significant proportion of those patients are being cured. So when, when you have that sort of that goal in mind, I think you're going to have patients who are motivated to do everything they can in that context. Why don't we go on to your second case, uh, the 63-year-old man? What happened there? All right. So this is a 63-year-old gentleman, uh, fairly healthy, uh, presents with uh, epigastric pain rating to his back and non-volitional weight loss. Uh, so he gets a CT scan by his primary care provider, and he has a pancreatic body mass uh, as well as multiple liver lesions. And a CA-19-9 is markedly elevated on laboratory tests. He gets a liver biopsy that confirms adenocarcinoma. The immunoprofiling is consistent with the pancreas primary. Um, our pathologists do MMR, um, uh, IHC on all uh, uh, patients, and these are all intact. Um, he does have a family history of uh, cancer, including a, a mom who had breast cancer relatively early age. And again, we are now sending all patients for germline testing. And lo and behold, he does end up having a germline BRCA2 mutation. Um, so even while we're waiting for these results, he does initiate chemotherapy with fulfurinox, so appropriate receiving a platinum agent um, uh, given his germline BRCA mutation. Uh, and he responds well. And he gets 12 cycles in total. He does require dose reduction along the way because of some cumulative fatigue and neuropathy. Um, and his blood counts are starting to be sluggish in returning um, uh, despite use of growth factor support. Um, and his C199 drops uh, uh, significantly, still elevated at the end of this time, but uh, he's had just clearly a good radiographic, clinical, and biochemical response. Okay, so he's now sort of hit a wall in terms of his uh, frontline chemotherapy. So based on the uh, POLO trial uh, data, I then start him on elaborate maintenance, standard 300 milligrams twice a day. And he, this is actually pretty well tolerated, just some sort of mild side effects, but it certainly compared to chemotherapy does, does quite well on this. Um, and he actually, this holds his disease in check for six months. And I think importantly, his quality of life, this just gives him an, an opportunity to sort of uh, recover from the cumulative toxicities of his frontline chemotherapy. Now, at the end of this period of time, his, his markers um, begin to climb, and a CT scan shows now uh, his disease had been holding steady, but now there's been some interval growth. And so I restarted him on chemotherapy. We talked about potentially going back to uh, fulfurinox, um, but he's uh, at this point interested in trying something uh, a little bit um, uh, easier, so we uh, switch them at this point to the combination of gemcitabine 
uh, and paclitaxel. So that's sort of where he's at right now. So, and how is he uh, tolerating therapy and any, any uh, evidence of response? So, so far, he's shown stable disease. His markers have declined uh, a bit. The, the issue in terms of neuropathy, and this is sort of as we sequence through a fulfirinox and a gemnat paclitaxel uh, regimen, certainly issues with cumulative neuropathy with both a platinum and a taxane, and then cytopenia. So typically when I uh, pivot to a gemnat paclitaxel in the second line setting, uh, I'm going to switch it to an every other week dose schedule. Uh, and there have been uh, studied mostly retrospective studies looking at sort of that alternating week schedule where there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, compromise in uh, efficacy. And, and that's sort of my standard practice rather than the standard three weeks on, one week off schedule. What do you do with patients? Maybe you see them in second opinion who get chemotherapy uh, first line and then progress uh, and you find out that they're BRCA, so you can't use a typical polo maintenance approach do you uh, try another chemo and use a, a, a PARP maintenance or do you try monotherapy with a PARP inhibitor for example yeah so to be clear PARP inhibition probably is not going to work in someone who has already demonstrated platinum resistance so if someone has gotten their fulfirinox and has progressed on it using at least as monotherapy um, is is not going to be a, a winning strategy now there are stra there are studies right now that are looking at PARP inhibition combined with an immune checkpoint inhibitor or a combination with something. So that absolutely reasonable. Um, meanwhile, if someone has sort of subsequently found to have a germline BRCA mutation and hasn't received a platinum agent before, like started on Gemnat paclitaxel, at that point, I would make sure that they uh, get some exposure, whether it be to cisplatin or oxaliplatin um, in their uh, second line setting. You know, uh, we have this general feeling and understanding that patients with BRCA germline respond better with platinum. Do you think that's the case either with uh, data or your clinical experience in pancreatic cancer? Yes. And so that's been my personal experience and uh, different primarily retrospective studies, uh, uh, including from sort of a national uh, uh Pancreatic Know Your Tumor Initiative, that out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, others have really uh, demonstrated that. Now, where I th thought you might be going is, is there a difference between cisplatin and oxaliplatin? And, and there's at least some, maybe some provocative preclinical data that uh, suggests that, but we don't yet know sort of what that translates to in, in clinical practice. Um, I, I will say that patients with a known BRCA uh, mutation using a combination of gemcitabine and cisplatin is an entirely reasonable alternative to fulfirinox. And a recent randomized trial of gemcis with or without a PARP inhibitor frontline for uh, BRCA or PALB2 associated pancreatic cancer. The response rate with just that gemcis backbone was about 70% or so. So, I mean, that is, it's actually a robust choice uh, for patients with BRCA associated pancreatic cancer. Yeah, it's interesting because you're talking about Eileen O'Reilly's study that, you know, was looking at a PARP inhibitor, and yet what really came out of it was the chemo regimen that caught everybody's attention. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the plus minus PARP turned out, to, it turned out to be a negative study as far as that goes, but the, the, the overall study cohort, the, the response rate was, was pretty eye-opening. Yeah, interesting. 
So, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about the POLO study and the POLO strategy of using maintenance, so Laparib, because some people say it should have been compared to chemo maintenance, theoretically, which it, I don't believe was. Um, any thoughts about that study and about that strategy in general? Is that what you're doing? So I completely agree with that. And sort of that was sort of the first thing I noted in that trial. First of all, the ability to get patients to agree to a sort of a placebo control arm. I'm not sure how uh, easy a sell that was. And I think there probably was some dropout as a result of that strategy. I mean, it's ethically defensible because there really is no defined maintenance strategy. But I will say that at present for your non-BRCA mutated pancreatic cancer who have gotten fulfurinox after six months and have plateaued, yes, you could give them a, a, a treatment holiday altogether. But I, I, I now actually more confidently think about, all right, let's keep you going on a even just oral capecitabine by itself or a, a Q3 weekly dose-reduced fall fury regimen or, or just something to keep them going. And admittedly, that there's not strong enough data in terms of how beneficial that is. But in terms of, I guess, from an equipoise standpoint for the POLO trial, um, I, I do think that is fair criticism in terms of, well, what would the results have looked like with just oral capecitabine compared to uh, a PARP inhibitor? Would there have been this improvement in PFS? We, we don't know that. And then obviously the other important point is sort of the absence of a, an overall survival benefit. So you had a doubling of PFS, great. Um, that's important. But uh, ultimately the, the gold standard of survival improvement, at least on interim, was not met. What about the tolerability of PARP inhibitors and Olaparib in patients with pancreatic cancer? Um, you know, of course, we have a lot of experience with ovary, breast, now prostate, pancreas. You wonder, you know, would they have, you know, because uh, nausea, GI problems have been seen with PARP inhibitors. Are they worse in patients with pancreatic cancer? What kind of tolerability issues are you seeing? So a little bit mixed. The, the case that I presented was a patient who actually did marvelously well and said, you know, he's hiking more than 10 miles a day and just feels so much better on that than on chemotherapy. And that really is part of the, the raison d'etre for, for maintenance treatment, right? To, to give folks a break from the, the being slammed with chemotherapy. I have had other individuals who frankly have not done as well with Olaparib because of the GI toxicities where we have had to uh, reduce from, from twice daily to, to just once a day dosing. Um, uh, so yeah, it is, it is somewhat mixed in that uh, context, but obviously both ease of administration and I'd say on, on the whole, better tolerability than chemotherapy are, are certainly key advantages. What about cytopenias, anemia? Yeah, so I mean, there is a bit of cytopenia. So I, I, that is something that I, I do need to uh, monitor, especially those patients who have already seen some of that from uh, being heavily pretreated with chemotherapy. So we do need to uh, follow their counts because they can become anemic on treatment. What are the genomic subsets where you think about this? Obviously, BRCA germline. What about dracosomatic? What about other uh, mutations? And how often do you see BRCA and these other mutations in metastatic pancreatic or pancreatic? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge question. I, I mean, technically, if you go by the book, the indication is specifically only for your, your, your germline uh, uh, mutation. I wasn't even able to get a laparib for a, a patient of mine with a germline PALB2 mutation, which I think is really same church, different pew, but, 
but technically not by the book in terms of uh, polo. Now, in terms of somatic mutations, if you look sort of a, a, a different um, genes that are sort of involved in this um, sort of homologous repair, um, it, you know, a very common one in pancreatic cancer is ATM. Um, and, and there's also just sort of um, certain assays that look at what I'll call brachiness or sort of genomic scarring, kind of a, a broader signature that's not just reliant on a, a point mutation in a single gene, but sort of looks at an overall uh, pattern. Um, again, I, I think those should be studied in the context of uh, PARP inhibitors in, in trials to cast a wider net because that would then increase sort of the eligible patient population up to maybe 20% or so compared to currently the sort of five, six, seven percent range. Um, that being said, at least of right, at least as of right now, um, I we're not there yet in terms of just sort of prescribing PARP inhibitors to those individuals with say a somatic uh, ATM or uh, or RAD51 um, mutation or something where um, we think maybe it'll work, but we just don't know yet. So I'm curious, we've had a few cases of patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer who were found to have a BRCA germline mutation, and then their family got tested and they found you know, uh, some, uh, some people with a mutation who were able to have you know, preventive surgery and kind of a, a legacy that these patients leave to their family of really finding out about this and hopefully curing that. I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever seen that phenomenon. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we always think of, oh, these founder uh, germline mutations in, say, the Ashkenazi Jewish population. Uh, but it turns out, really, in sort of across the board, and, and some of this data came out because so many patients were screened for the polo trial that they were able to say, hey, you know, at, at similar or even slightly lower, but real incidences in the um, in different uh, Latino communities, in the African-American community. Uh, 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 in black populations uh, and, and others, so that it's it's not it's not something that is just just limited to just one very uh, small niche. It, it, you know, those mutations can be found across. And, and you're absolutely right. I tell patients when we're doing it, it may have implications for you, um, but it certainly will also have um, implications in terms of uh, screening and prevention strategies for your family members. So let's finish out with your third case: the 70 year old man. Yeah, so this third case is a 70-year-old gentleman. He develops obstructive jaundice symptoms and workup shows elevated uh, bilirubin and a pancreatic head mass, again, with a double duct sign. And he's one because his disease appears localized. He goes straight to surgery and has a, a T2N1 tumor, uh, moderately differentiated with three positive lymph nodes, clean margins. And so he recovers well. He's pretty fit overall, so he goes ahead and receives adjuvant modified fulfirinox, um, and he gets the full 12 cycles. He does require some dose reduction um, along the way, and eventually the, we, we have to drop the oxaliplatin towards the end because I don't want him to have sort of permanent neuropathy. He does well um, for about the next year, um, but then some CT scans really at about the year point show some small bilateral pulmonary lesions. And and sometimes when I see these, I'll just sort of 
a patient is asymptomatic, I'll say, oh, we got to keep an eye out, but let's just follow and watch. They're too tiny to biopsy. And sort of over time, as those lesions grow, it becomes clear that, all right, this is sort of a fairly indolent recurrence with lung-only uh, metastases. And there it becomes a discussion with the patient about the timing of when you start treatment, especially if, if the volume is low and the patient is asymptomatic. Um, but ultimately, about six months uh, later, we start them on chemotherapy with uh, Gemnap Paclitaxel. Again, I use this other every other week dosing schedule. And uh, at this time, I'm also doing molecular profiling on his original surgical specimen. Nothing that really is um, something that I would say is going to immediately change my uh, choice of treatment. So sort of the most common mutations, he has a KRAS G12D, P53, P53. He does have this ATM mutation and microsatellite uh, stability, low tumor mutational burden. Can you talk a little bit about what made you choose NABGEM in this patient as opposed to modified fulfirinox? Well, remember, recall he received adjuvant fulfirinox a little more than a and finished that. Um, at, th at that point, it was about a year and a half ago. And, you know, so that's a modest residual neuropathy. And, I mean, technically, sort of if you use either six months or a year uh, in uh, uh, interval uh, between completion of treatment, technically he could go back on. That, that same regimen. But, you know, I think at that point, I, th I thought we might just get uh, a higher yield from switching him to something um, uh, to something different at that point. That's the choice of Gemnap Paclitax. If he hadn't had adjuvant therapy, what do you think he would have done? Since he was a pretty fit gentleman, I do tend to, my preference still is to go with a Fulfurinox regimen as my first line uh, choice of therapy. Um, I always tell patients that you know, if they either don't tolerate it well or the point they progress, it, it's sort of easier, I think, to sequence starting with a, a, a sort of the, the more aggressive combo and then uh, switching to a gem-based regimen after that time than vice versa. Could you talk about how you sequence patients in terms of second and third line therapy, the patient who starts out with fulfirinox and the patient who starts out with NABGEM? Yeah, so a patient who starts with uh, fulfirinox, I will switch them at that point to uh, gemcitabine-based uh, second-line treatment. Most commonly, that will be gemcitabine plus nabpaclitaxel, although sometimes the neuropathy may be a rate-limiting step for them. No question about that. Um, conversely, if someone has starts on gemnabpaclitaxel, I'll say it's pretty rare that they're still well enough then that we can go with the full fulfirinox second line. Um, we do that on occasion, but more commonly at that point, I will switch them to the nanoliposomal irinotecan with 5-FU leucovorin combination. Um, and then if they don't respond to that or the point where they progress on that, then I'll switch them to Fall-Fox third line. And of course, along the way, if we have any uh, attractive clinical trials for which they'll be eligible, um, we'll, we'll try to, um, to get them into studies um, at any point uh, in, along their treatment course. So let's go back to your patient. So he does well for four months on uh, gem, nab, but then he has worsening neuropathy. Can you talk about kind of what happened there? Yeah, and, and so this is common. Uh, again, when, when you're sequencing patients through both an oxalate-based and, and nab paclitaxel uh, regimens, that, that neuropathy is going to oftentimes be a rate-limiting step. And we'll start with dose modifications first, but ultimately it was, this was getting too severe. And so he, I, I simplified him to gemcitabine alone. And 
maybe not surprisingly, after a couple of months on just gem monotherapy, uh, we were starting to see some progression. The, the scan you see on the right is, is sort of one of the larger lesions uh, towards the base of his um, uh, of his left lung. Um, he's still in decent shape overall, wants to remain aggressive. So at that point, I switch him to 5-FU Leucovorin and uh, Naliri. Um, sort of recognizing that he has been exposed to Fulfirinox in the past. And again, the question of uh, using nanoliposomal irinotecan um, for someone who's at least been exposed to previous free irinotecan as part of the Fulfirinox regimen. How much bang for your buck you're going to get, that's, that's sort of an open question. Um, treatment is a little bit tough on him, uh, sort of not surprisingly, fatigue and some GI side effects. And he does well on this uh, for a few months at least, but um, um, after four months, uh, we have to take him off because he's showing some further progression. I, again, these, these individuals who have lung-only disease, I think their trajectory is a little bit different, um, a, a little bit more indolent where they can, you can think about multiple lines of treatment. So, um, so at that point, see, I, I referred him to our early phase uh, team to look at uh, clinical trials, and that's where we're at right now. Can you talk a little bit about Naliri 5-FU, the data on it, and what your thoughts are and clinical practice patterns are related to it? Yeah, so, you know, I do use uh, Naliri in that, it is particularly in the context of individuals who have previously received um, gemcitabine, NAP, paclitaxel, frontline, and Oftentimes, I'll consider it a, a, a more attractive second-line choice, in part because of that neuropathy we've been uh, talking about. Because it doesn't—you're um, not hitting someone again with a with a, a neurotoxic uh, agent like oxaliplatin in that second-line setting. So, I, so I will typically use that um, uh, that Naliri five FU Leucovorin, and that's based on the Napoli one uh, trial data that really showed an improvement um, compared to. Uh, just five of you leucovorin by itself. Um, and I think those were, I think those data are real. You know, I think people have wondered in terms of, well, how does, how would this compare to just Fulfiri or to Fulfox? And, you know, fair questions, but I, uh, for me, I sort of go with what the, sort of the, if we have level one evidence uh, with a study that demonstrates its uh, benefit, um, that's sort of my go-to second line standard. Rarely, as I said, there might be a patient who is well enough to, to even try Fulfirinox second line, but uh, more commonly, I'll, I'll be using a doublet rather than a triplet in that second line setting. What do we know about Naliri in the front line setting? I think we have seen a little bit of data on that. Um, what do we know about it, and where do you think that's heading? Yeah, I, you know, I've um, personally off study, I certainly am not using that in the front line setting. We have the phase 1b to data of this Naliri-Fox uh, triplet combination where the Naliri is substituting for the free irinotecan within the Fulfirinox regimen. Um, and the, admittedly, the numbers are, it, it's a small cohort, but the numbers look promising. You know, the, the median progression-free survival of upwards of nine months, overall survival uh, greater than a year, are promising enough to, to sort of lead to this Napoli-3 phase three trial. And the study is designed, you know, we always talk about how between Fulfirinox and Gemnat Paclitaxel, there's not really a direct head-to-head -head comparison between the two in the metastatic disease setting. Well, this Napoli-3 trial kind of is 
close to that, right, with a Fulfirinox-like regimen uh, using Nalary. And the comparator arm is not Fulfirinox. The comparator arm is Gemnab Paclitaxel. So, um, you know, that very well could be, a, you know, a, a positive study. And if so, I think that would... It'll be interesting if it's a positive study in terms of whether this Nellery Fox will supplant Fulfirinox as a frontline standard. Um, I think it'll just depend on how robust those results look. Nellery Fox, that has kind of a cool name to it. You know, it's interesting when you think... It's not bad. Yeah, it's not I bad. like it. So uh, it's interesting in pancreatic cancer, you have two liposomal formulations that you use, Napaclitaxel and now Leary, what are your thoughts about that kind of you know pharmacologic strategy? Is that to, I never really exactly understood whether the idea was to get better efficacy, better tolerability, you know, kind of mechanically even what's going on. Any thoughts about that? It's a better therapeutic. Well, as it, you know, it is a better therapeutic window, and and if you sort of take a deeper dive mechanistically, um, for example, with uh, nanoliposomal irinotecan you are getting, and in part because of the liposomal um, uh, formulation, you are getting what's called enhanced permeability and retention within the tumor microenvironments. So it's basically getting more drug within the, um, uh, within the tumor itself. And, and then sort of the, the toxic metabolites are, um, are at, at lower concentration circulation. So that's this sort of therapeutic window that ostensibly you're getting, be you'd get better efficacy with less uh, uh, toxicity by being able to deliver more, more drug to where you want it to go. And kind of n not exactly the same, but for, for nabpaclitaxel, there, there have been studies that show in terms of how it can, um, uh, how it can penetrate the tumor more uh, effectively and intriguingly may even sort of soften that, that, that tumor microenvironment a bit uh, as well. So there's some, some thoughts there uh, also. So, um, yeah, it's a good point in terms of how these different formulations may sort of be uniquely primed to, to, to work more effectively. So the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, supportive care and palliative care for the patient with metastatic pancreatic cancer. I know you see a lot of second opinions. I'm curious how you approach it at your place. Uh, what are some of the key palliative issues and whether there are any pearls? You see people doing things that come to you for a second opinion that maybe you wouldn't have done Anything you tell your fellows about how to make these people more comfortable? Our cancer center is blessed with having what's called a symptom management service team, which is different than just, call, you know, we specifically didn't want to call a palliative care service, which maybe has, still has some negative connotations or not, not negative, but just sort of the sense of, well, sort of pulling back on active treatment. And this is intended to be to, to accompany um, sort of ongoing active treatment to manage symptoms as uh, well as possible. And, and I think that the, I think making sure that a nutritionist is on board relatively early on because of just the cachexia and inanition that's associated um, with this disease is so important. I think, um, uh, I, I think managing the psychosocial aspects uh, of it are, are absolutely um uh, essential. We talked about um, sort of digestive issues and probably patients are undertreated with pancreatic enzyme supplements to address their exocrine insufficiency. Um, you know, there are a number of other, I'll call adjunctive therapies that may 
be useful, whether it include acupuncture, which a number of my patients use, um, obviously medical cannabis um, uh, in the California Bay Area um, uh, can be as effective as any prescription uh, medications in terms of for uh, appetite stimulation. Um, yeah, so those are a few of the uh, a, a few of the um, uh, initial thoughts for for patients, especially later in their illness, where um, cachexia and anorexia are a, a big issue. You know, I, I I commonly use drugs like mirtazapine, which is obviously used as an antidepressant, but also can be uh, helpful for appetite stimulation. Low dose steroids, I, I find uh, a good, obviously not necessarily long term, but I, I think are important both for treating chronic nausea and for appetite and energy. And then I shouldn't have left this for last, but, but aggressive pain management is, is certainly the a big part of it. I tell patients, you know, your if we don't have a good handle of your pain, that will affect your mood, your sleep, your appetite, your just every facet of your life. So don't worry about the addictive aspect of it. You know, this, you're someone in whom good pain management is absolutely essential. So whether that involves a combination of a long and short-acting opioid, usually when we get to uh, uh, medications like methadone, I'll, I'll want our pain management team involved with that. And then certainly uh, CELAC, plexus, splanchnic nerve blocks um, for select patients uh, can be effective as well. You know, it's funny. I was talking about AML. And, you know, we in the, as a CME group, we were in the middle of all that as it was coming out. And there was just, you know, so much excitement to turn a disease that was just so devastating to something that really is starting to look pretty treatable. Just imagining what that might be like if it happened with pancreatic cancer. I guess that's the fantasy yeah. pancreatic investigators all have. Dare to dream. I, I like that as an aspirational idea where we sort of turn this. And, and I will say for select patients, we are seeing that. Long, I mean, we're not touting a cure necessarily, but sort of multi-year survival, sort of managing with more aggressive treatments punctuated with sort of pulling back and and managing symptoms as we go along. I think we are changing the natural history of it to some extent. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Ko, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.